Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tins and Beagles podcast. My name is Andre and we are finally, all, all three of us here, uh, me, Vansh, Owen, we've done episodes separately. Vansh did one with Steve Flink, which was pretty good. And then me and Owen, we did one with uh, Juan Jose. And there was one just Owen and Juan Jose. And I think Owen and Vansh did a, a special episode with um, Murray Musings. Just the two of them, because I couldn't, I, couldn't I couldn't hop into that call. One day we're going to get all six of us uh, in the same talk. It's going to be complete chaos, but it's going to be fun. Uh, looking forward to those days, to that day. Murray Musings, if you're listening to this. And by the way, I will know if you actually listen to the podcast, if you actually respond with a message to this, like say, um, whatever, bacon and eggs in the comments of my Twitter thing, if you have listened to this episode. Um, anyways, uh, how are you guys doing? Yeah, it's been a really long time since the three of us have, you know, got together and done a pod together, but I'm I'm pretty excited. There's a lot, quite a bit to talk about. And uh, this past week was pretty exciting. So yeah, cool. I, I've been good as well. Took a little bit of a break from following tennis really closely after the u.s open but uh really excited to be back talking tennis with you guys Mm -hmm. Uh, and actually last week was actually a kind of a special week for for um especially since he was uh at his first tournament with a media credential am i right yeah that's the first time i've ever done anything um like i've ever gotten a chance to uh, go to a tournament like actually covering it so that was a pretty unique experience i got to go on saturday uh, for the san diego semifinals and i also just covered the rest of it um at home like i got to go to zoom press conferences i had a virtual credential so that was that was a pretty cool experience never done that before yeah and he by the way he was with the tennis and bagels credential so it's technically our first ever media appearance in, a, in an atp tournament so that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Time for us to get that blue check on Twitter. True. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what would happen if we applied. Probably we'd get a message <laughs> that we need more followers. <laughs> yeah. When we can was... host our first space on, on Twitter, oh, we're going to apply for that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was a great opportunity because, yeah. um, you know, San Diego Open, this is the first time they have a tournament in this area and uh, in, in Southern California, apart from Indian Wells on the ATP side. So it was they were kind of just looking for all media members or any, any people that they could get to, you know, help facilitate and accommodate the players and, you know, make this a really successful event, which it was on its debut. And it really, it really exceeded a lot of expectations that the tournament organizers had and the managing director and um, you know, the, all the people that were in attendance. I mean, the crowd was electric. It was, it was a great atmosphere. And I think uh, from what I'm hearing and what, I heard in the trophy presentation at the end, it's a very good chance that this tournament will be back next year. So this could be like a reoccurring thing uh, in terms of us covering this event. So fingers crossed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, it doesn't really, 
I mean, it's it's kind of surprising in the sense like California is a really big hub of tennis, right? In in, yeah. the, in the United States, so obviously they they have the Masters One Thousand, but surprisingly they don't have more tournaments. I think they had San Jose okay. this year, but that San Jose is in, is in California too. Eh? I'm not yeah. great with the U.S. Yeah. geography. It is. It's it's a little bit more north. It's yeah, yeah. It's North California, but SoCal. I mean, that's where you know yeah. a lot of junior, a lot of the best juniors come from, along with Florida. Yeah. And you have some of the best academies and best facilities here. The weather is so good, yes. and the conditions are so good that it's it's very surprising that it took so many years. But finally, we have it now. Yeah. And it, and you know, props to them because they had only about five weeks to get this whole thing together. Mm-hmm. And on such a short notice, they were able to partner with the ATP. Yeah. They were able to get, um, you know, Rod Laver in the house for the final, and he presented Casper Ruud with the trophy, which was which was That's pretty sick. special. Um, Billy Jean King was the honorary chairman. And, you know, the managing director uh, happened to be Danny Valverdu, who's worked very closely with Andy Murray, and he was one of his coaches a long time ago. So yeah. he, he's got a big role in this. And then there's, yeah, just so many people in charge that put this together. They only have two courts there in the Barnes Tennis Center, which is actually a facility that I've played at many, many times. Um, when I used to play tennis back in the day, good old days uh, in the junior circuit. So it, it was cool to kind of go to an event and be like, oh, yeah, I've played on these courts before and I've. You know, I, I I recall like pretty big matches that I've played in, in this kind of atmosphere and weather and conditions. And it's it's just so cool to see like world-class tennis. And they, they had such an exciting field and, you know, really, really good names that they were able to get for an ATP 250. It was probably the second most competitive ATP 250 that we've had this year, apart from Doha, which of course had Roger Federer and Dominic Team. And so, I mean, the cutoff for this event was insanely high for a 250. I believe it was around 45 in the world to even get in the main draw. You know, mm. at, at one point, like if Kevin Anderson doesn't qualify for a main draw of a 250, you know, it's pretty, pretty competitive. So um, he, he was in as a lucky loser. But just the fact that we had so many big names and obviously we had Rublev and Rude and, you know, a couple big, like we had Andy Murray in there. We had Kane Nishikori who couldn't play. And then Shapovalov and yeah. Felix Ojeliasim, who That's actually right. didn't end up playing, but he was supposed to play as a number four seed, I think. Right. Yeah. Number four, yeah. number three seed, I think. And three then, seed, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Chapo was fourth seed, and it was just it was such a great lineup because also a lot of these players are on their way to Indian Wells, which will start, you know, this upcoming week. And so it's a, just a good destination for them to just get a few matches under their belt and just feel the conditions a little bit in Southern California yeah. before yeah. they play in October, which is, you know, very different from what we're used to with it being in March normally. So, yeah, hopefully we'll, they'll find a permanent stay on the calendar at some point. And, uh, you know, it'd be, a, it'd be nice if they could insert it in before Indian Wells. Yeah. But still, talks are going to happen with the ATP, and it's not completely certain yet. But I think the turnout was exceptional. There mm-hmm. were two thousand people that were there on both days of qualifying, and the the uh, crowd was sold out for Friday quarterfinals and Saturday semis and Sunday in the final. And yeah, I mean, there were people from all kinds of backgrounds, and there were flags all over the place: Bulgarian flags and you know UK flags, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. people. People just, it seemed like people who came there really knew their tennis and really knew the background of the players. So it was really a lot more diehard fans and a lot, like a good mix of just people of all ages and backgrounds. And it was, it was pretty cool to be there in person. I actually had really good seats. So I was right in the front first couple of rows. So I got, got a chance to see really up close and personal with the players. And it was, it was so great. So. It's a great experience. Um, v- yeah. Vaughn, on, on the day that you were there in person, what, 
what was sort of different um, from watching on TV? Like what little details did you notice that you don't maybe see from a TV broadcast? And were you looking for anything in particular that you don't when you watch normally? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Like I was, because I had such a good vantage point, I could really see the footwork really, really clearly and just how hard they were hitting the ball, which I guess doesn't always come across so well on the TV. Like you, you know how hard they're hitting it and it, you know, it, it comes across to a certain degree, but when you can actually see the ball just ping off their racket, like a Rublev left forehand, for example, or like, you know, Casper uh, Root speed around the court, you know, we know these things from watching, but it's just, it's a whole other thing to just see it like with such a good vantage point and from the side, you know? So it was, it was really nice. I was able to take a lot of videos and really cool pictures and just the, the whole um, uh, display of the court and everything. You could feel that on TV with the planes in the background and things like that, but just those visuals and those angles that you get uh, from watching it sort of court level is just a, is just a whole nother experience, I think. Mm. Um, just one thing before we keep going. So like, Because Owen has also been to a tournament this year. It was also his first tournament uh, with a credential. He didn't go with our Tennis and Bagels badge, but he did also with uh, his own blog that has been going on for longer than this podcast. So um, I don't think we ever got a chance to actually talk much about in this podcast about his experience there in Newport. Um, but I think this episode is going to be interesting to just kind of have the experience that they have as, as media because um, it's definitely like such a different experience like when you go and you watch so many more matches um, live and up close and then you get more access to players you get to ask different questions so it's it's a whole different level than just kind of making your work in parallel to what's going on than to actually being in touch with players so yeah um, and yeah and I think it's cool that I, I mean we both went to 250s but they were so different like Newport is on grass and um, San Diego is a hard court and um I guess something I was wondering about for you, Vonch, was um, when I went, um, like a big no a big difference for me from watching on TV was the serve. Like usually I get bored by big serves and I want to see rallies. But when I was in person, the serves just like completely amazed me. Like a 112 mile an hour serve looks absolutely massive if you're like, I don't know, 100 feet away from it. Whereas on, on a TV, it looks like n not necessarily dinky, but it doesn't look huge. Um And just seeing players like jump up for that serve and hit them at these ridiculous angles when you're so much closer. Um, like, what was your experience with that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually forgot about that. The serves were really jumped out as me as well. Just the, the pace and the explosiveness with which they hit them. It, it doesn't come across so fast on, on, on TV or the trajectory of the ball doesn't quite come through. But when you're seeing it live and you're seeing how just the impact of those serves and just the way they can come up with them so effortlessly in big moments, I think that's what always will just continue to amaze me. Like just break points down the way they can just fire those big serves, even if they're just, even if they're not aces, but unreturnables or just, you know, really good spot serves as well. Like, you know, Cameron Norrie, you don't really think of him as a big server, but he was hitting his spots really well against Andre Rublev in that second and third set. And it was just like amazing. Like, wow, how did he find that angle? You know? And uh, even if it was just 105 and he took, a, took the pace off, but just the angles that he's able to create and just the like, just being able to see it right you can almost hear the ball like just echo as it bounces and that's just it's so cool like it's, yeah it's a different experience yeah i think um i think kind of the sounds that um the ball makes around the stadium as well um uh, andre i think you'll be able to speak to this as well because you were at um you're at the canada tournament this year right yeah 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 so um I, i guess something that i noticed from sort of a stadium seat is just like all the sounds you hear that 
like you don't get when you're on TV because um since since like when you're there um you don't have to deal with the camera and like commercial breaks you see the stuff that happens on the changeovers as well um mm-hmm. and something that surprised me is like how close the cameras get to the players like when they're sitting down like they're only a couple feet away and I think That's like right, yeah. you know that has to be uncomfortable but it's all to get that uh that TV angle and also um how loud the lines people were uh, when they were making calls surprised me as well because yeah. i think um i'm not sure if there's a filter for tv but when you when you're there and you hear you hear them yell out and then um in between points they actually like run to the other side uh, to get ready for the serve um so they can be lined up with the sideline um and that was actually something i didn't notice until i saw um Newport in person um mm-hmm. and so it's kind of cool to see from that angle like all the little things that you don't necessarily appreciate on TV. And you do get that like wide, beautiful angle of the court. Um, yeah. But there's definitely a lot to be said for um, all the other things you get when you're in person. Yeah. Did you I also guess... have um, for, for Owen, did you also, uh, did you have lines people in Newport? Like, yeah. was that, oh, okay. That's cool. Cause we didn't mm. have, um, we had electronic line calling. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. for us, like, you know, sometimes players would ask just for reassurance. They'd ask for the video. Even yeah. though the call doesn't really change, but they it just, was it was it was it Hawkeye or, or was it real bounce that you had? Uh, I think it was Hawkeye, but yeah. it was they, they they used the video board for that, uh, yeah. and so at times you you would hear the crowd just go oh because it was just you know a yeah millimeter yeah. out. We had that in Montreal too. It's like it's just like I'm, I feel like the crowd still likes it just to see like how close it was. Yeah. From, from a TV standpoint, like I've complained about this on Twitter, like I really find like asking for the review, it's kind of BS and like, just like wasting yeah. time because it's like, it's not going to change the call. There's barely any, I feel like it doesn't really add any value to to TV, but I feel like maybe also for the stadium topic. is, because honestly, like under a stadium, it's just a, a totally different experience, right? Like you're, right. Um, you're experiencing something that you don't really want to end that quickly. Like whereas on TV, you just kind of feel like, it's easier to disengage like when you're in the stadium which is like you're part of the the whole thing right yeah um and uh two things that you, when you when you spoke to me that kind of um resonate a lot with me like was the the, the out call that the lines people do and the um, the camera thing like i did training for a lines person like when in right here in quebec so i have like the basic skills to to call um small matches i haven't i don't have any enough experience but read i don't have any experience because by the time that i finished the pandemic hit so there was obviously no lines calling um and um but yeah like they actually make you yell out like they actually make you train your voice so that you can scream as loud as you possibly can and they give like a few examples of lines people and you're kind of like yeah actually i've seen this person before on on court and in a way, you just kind of like imagining yourself, like, how can I yell out as loud as I can so that people on Arthur Ashe, like on the loudest, on the farthest seats could actually hear it. So it's like, it's it's that level of like trying to like become, because this is also a mark of a good lines person is that like people hear you. Yeah. And there's that's... no no doubt in your voice. You cannot just be like out because it's like, you yeah, know, you'd be like out. I know yeah. it was out. That, yeah. That's that's cool to hear about because I think... um. I think the lines people are a totally unexplored part of tennis in terms mm. of covering like um because they're on court they see everything mm. and they have to make these pinpoint calls off these hundred mile an hour shots that are like scraping lines or just missing lines yeah. and they get scrutinized if they miss a tiny thing when yeah. basically for every single shot it's like how the hell did they know that was in or out um yeah so, so it's so it's cool to hear about that um mm-hmm. yeah um Vonch, i guess another question i had was um what was it like being part of a full stadium? Because the first match I saw in Newport, even mm-hmm. though this was on the stadium court, 
it was like the stands were completely deserted. I got to pick basically whatever seat I want. I wanted. There were like a hundred people in the stands, and I remember I was watching a match between uh, Brooksby and um, Evgeny Donskoy, and they played like a pretty good rally on the first point, and basically like no one clapped. It was the craziest thing. I was I was expecting like a nice ovation, and it was like dead silence. So what was it like for you? Um, with like two thousand people in the stands. Yeah, it was it was it was awesome because um, on the one hand, it's not like a huge stadium, you know, like some of the other bigger five hundreds or one thousands have them, like. You know, Indian Wells, which starts next week, that's the second biggest stadium in the world after Arthur Ashe um, in tennis. So, but this one is a very intimate kind of a setting. And what I liked about it is there was these close-up seats that you had, um, like the first four rows, where it was a lot of the um, uh, VIP people or like the coaching teams uh, of, of both the players. And then on the top, you had this big gap of like stairs and like uh, a whole like tray, a whole like big squad of people just just for the fans and it was up a little bit higher up but it was a good vibe because there was flags all over the place and there were people chanting uh you know all different kinds of um chants in between rallies there was music going on at some point the umpire even had to tell um you know the mc people like turn the music down because it's it's distracting the players and so it, it, you could i mean the people were absolutely into it like especially the later in the evening they got the more drunk the people got. So you could, you could definitely tell like they've been drinking a lot of beers and stuff, but in terms of just the atmosphere, I, I thought it was a very good uh, friendly atmosphere towards both the players. I never felt like it was super bipartisan, even when, you know, um, Gregor Dimitrov was playing against Casper Ruud. That was some, one of the best atmospheres I've ever seen um, personally. Uh, my only complaint was that I do wish a little bit more COVID go- the guidelines and protocols were followed in place. Uh, still too many people wearing their masks incorrectly, uh, which always annoys me, or just some people not wearing masks at all. But nonetheless, it was a great, uh, it was just such a great atmosphere for the players to play in, in front of. And they all just remarked afterwards about how, uh, just how how awesome the crowd is and how much it really actually helped Grigor Dimitrov like back into the match in the second set when he was really struggling to uh, make any inroads in Kasper Ruud's game. And then uh, just it just made for such compelling and close matches, I think. And, uh, you know, the crowd can really sway the way uh, m- momentum changes in a match. We saw it at the U.S. Open also. So it was it was quite electric. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that that's amazing. And I think that's another thing that you kind of have to be able to appreciate in person before you can fully understand it is like the crowd actually sure. being able to make a difference in a match. Because when you're watching on TV, it's like you hear it. But since you're behind a screen, it's tough to really, I guess, not not understand, but like fully put into like um, your thoughts that it is like thousands of people screaming at the players. But when you're there, it's like there are heads all around you. Like the players down on the court, you can see them. They're not that far away. And it's like yeah. between a point, yeah. like you can hear what the people are saying. They can be like, oh, that was a bad miss or like they're not playing well today or stuff like that. And like the player is hearing most of this. Um and so it's like, um, so I think when you're there, it's much easier to understand like that the crowd actually is a factor and how tough mentally the players have to be to block that out or make use of the tears. Yeah, I think yeah. for um, the thing that, that speaks on, um, a lot about like professionalism and things, like, it also goes in line with the, the sound of the ball, the angles, how, how, how crazy good they are. Um, because as you said, like the camera people, like they really go super close in between points. So it's not like um, be, like before and after a match, right? So like they're, they're there and they're sitting. And I just kind of like try to imagine myself because I, I got to be super close this year as well, like courtside in the final. 
um and i was just um staring at it and just imagining that was, the, the stadium was like 30 percent full i think in montreal this year um which is a shame but honestly covid so we actually got lucky that we had any anyone like on the on the stadium so um but yeah like when when you're there and you see all those players there, i just kind of try to put place myself in their situation and i was thinking man i, I think i would just freeze because i would just get super nervous like there's so many people watching imagine if you play badly like it, i feel like yeah. it, if you it feels so embarrassing and the camera people just like how can you just know that you're in this massive screen like being televised to the entire world to see and you're just like obviously not in your best right like you're all sweaty and like you're looking tired as heck and just kind of trying to focus and like i mean there's definitely not like a like a beauty contest in a contest in any way but you're like yeah. it, there's there's gotta be like a lot of psychology going on on in there like and we honestly we we like to talk a lot about like tennis mentality and emotions and things like that but um and it's obviously like we're gonna get into that in a second like about your media questions but um you actually the amount me, of uh, into yeah. a really good yeah but yeah into in, in in a way like just the amount of psychological and emotional pressure that these people are like the professionals and the elite in the world like probably top 100 i would say like top 200 even like in challengers and things like that it's is too massive for for us to comprehend i guess like we can be on the stadium and and see that up close it's, it's a nice perspective just to understand like that, that these people are definitely one in one in a million i would say yeah it was it was pretty crazy actually now that you bring up the the point about performance and anxiety it there's a really interesting story actually that i have so on saturday i was um sitting there in the with the first semifinal um rublev and cameron nori and throughout the whole match there was a guy sitting next to me um he he was a big cameron nori supporter and he was just yelling after every single point come on let's go cam go nori go to, you know come on that's a great ball do it again you know keep it up and stuff like that it wasn't like coaching or anything but it was like just kind of giving him like positive reinforcement and feedback so that cameron would kind of just look at him and just just you know just feel positive vibes and just get that energy and just get back into the match because rublev the match was really on his racket and he won that first set and it was it looked like it was going to be a pretty comfortable victory for the number one seed but then as the match just went on he was able to impose his game and just clear out everything and block everything out and just just raises intensity and it was it was quite impressive to watch and so this whole time i'm sitting there wondering i'm like is this guy affiliated with cam nori in any way because i he could just be a fan but part of me just thinks like maybe he's worked with cameron nori before or maybe he's just uh, his mental coach or something like that um because like he is just he is really invested in this outcome of this match and so i was just whispering to my brother i'm like should i ask him you know like cuz i'm really curious <laughs> and and you know on the side i was just like googling like who is cameron cameron nori's coach again and i'm like no this guy is not argentinian it must be somebody else and so i i was just thinking like you know maybe i'll just wait till the end of the match maybe i'll ask him i'll just keep uh, i'll just keep building it up inside my brain and then at, at one point i think it was cameron nori was about to serve for the match at 5-4 in the third set um and so then i just leaned over and i asked him i'm like so are you Cameron Nori's uh, coach by any chance like are you affiliated with him and he just started la laughing a little bit and he said no that's <laughs> i can see why you think that but i actually used to work with Cameron in the past and i used to help him 
uh, a lot with his physiology, with the phys physiology and the competition side of it. So I used to help him a lot with mental training and we used to go through breathing exercises together. We used to go through um, how to improve performance, um, how to improve our the little things that we can control and just really the mental side of the game. It, it had nothing to do with kind of tactics or any technical component. It was all just about, you know. Just tell me, just tell me you got his contact number. Body though. language and everything. <laughs> and actually, no, believe it or not, I didn't because, you know, you only have a minute before the, the changeovers are so short these days. Yeah. And then, it'd be, you know, it'd be great to, to have but... you'd have been great to have him on the podcast but we're gonna yeah. cross him for sure like tennis the tennis sphere is actually much smaller <laughs> than we think hopefully but i mean he gave me some he gave just me and my brother some great insight into what what actually changed the outcome of that match because you know just on paper you know it just looked like ruba was definitely the, the favorite and he was definitely the more overpowering player and he probably should have won just tennis wise but then he started explaining to me that Rublev is reacting and getting frustrated the way he is because he actually just is struggling right now to control his control what he can control and his and he's getting extremely negative on himself because his body is going in ways that he doesn't have control of. And I just thought that was so interesting. So then I asked him, you know, is that really the biggest difference that you've seen in Cameron Norrie's game? And he said, hundred percent. If there's nothing in his game that's changed dramatically, it's all about the mental work and all the work that he's put in the behind the inner game and the and just breathing and just a, a more holistic, positive approach to life. And that really comes through when he's playing on the court and the fight and the most he's able to get out of his game. So I thought that was a really cool nugget and just a cool experience uh, of just uh, that I just so happened to sit next to him. So that was that was great. And after the match, he actually went and fist pumped with Cam and they both it seemed like they both knew each other for a long time. So that was cool for sure. That, that That's an amazing anecdote. Um, and it's kind of cool that like stuff like that can happen when you're on site because um right like um it's cool to watch a match with tennis twitter because um you know everyone's a huge tennis fan but like when you're there it's almost like being in person with people like that because everyone there is like a hardcore tennis fan and some right. of them uh, like the guy you talk to even have affiliations with the players so um yeah that's amazing yeah yeah and um I guess like Andre touched on um, a minute ago with um, with the media questions, what was your experience um, asking players questions? Because the first press co conference I went to, I was so nervous. So I want to hear about uh, how it was for you. I was really, really nervous because especially at first I was like, oh no, this Zoom link isn't working. And, you know, what am I going to do? Wait, wait, what's the passcode again? Oh my God, he's supposed to come at 1230. It's already 1231. Hurry, hurry, come on. And so I eventually got in the room and I, got, I was invited and then there were so many hands already up. And so I was like, okay, I better just raise my hand quickly and just come up with a question, you know, on the spot. And, uh, you know, there's so many matches going on at the same time. So you're not quite always able to catch everything that's going on in the other courts. But obviously you just, you know, I, I thought this is my first experience. Let me just kind of ask the general question. It was um, Federico Del Bonas, who had actually just lost his first round against um, Aslan Karatsev. So I just, you know, came up with a question really quickly. I just kind of, um, I watched a little bit of the, of the match just to get kind of get a feel beforehand and I just uh, I just said okay I'll go for it and uh, I was well aware that uh, a lot of the people in the press room were speaking Spanish and they were in they were um, a couple of them were Argentinian journalists and you know Federico's you know probably going to be in a bit of a sour mood that's probably expected he just lost a pretty um, you know a, a match where he had some chances in the second set and he you know he's probably upset so I'll just uh, I'll just respect it and I'll just see what happens and I just waited and eventually I got my chance and uh, he was quite, quite, uh, I noticed if you just, you know, connect with the players and you just, um, you know, just adjust the way you speak and just, just 
you know, stay relaxed and calm and they'll respond to you because they, they understand, they know they've been in press conferences before they've done this after every loss, after every win. And so they kind of have a feel, it is a little bit difficult on zoom to kind of get through in terms of um, body language and really connecting with the player and building that rapport, especially if it's your first time. But I think, uh, I think, you know, the players responded pretty well and I was able to kind of get my question in, which was more about, you know, how was the struggle of dealing with uh, Kratzev was such a great returner and he takes the ball so early, you know, how did that, how did you adjust to that as the match went on? And he gave a, you know, a pretty measured, nice, uh, a good, good response. And I got something out of it. And so I felt, uh, I felt pretty good. And then I realized you can actually ask for follow-ups. You can, uh, <laughs> and I didn't know you could do that. So, Eventually, I was uh, I was more prepared after that first experience. So it, yeah. pretty, it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I um I actually had a similar thing. Like my um so the first one I went to, I was super nervous, and then I asked a question, and I was like um, and at first I was like, you know, I am a tennis fan, and I'm talking to a tennis player. Like this is a person talking to a god right now. And then after they responded, I was like, okay, well they're they're just talking to me they're not we're not playing tennis so the the difference isn't that wide and then after I understood that I was fine um but yeah like something I didn't realize especially because the press conferences in Newport were so tiny like it sounds like yours were really crowded so much so that not everyone got to ask questions at Newport I don't think I was ever at a press conference where more than three journalists asked questions and so um when I like I told this story to Juan Jose a while ago um I requested Kevin Anderson one day um, and I prepared three questions and I was thinking like, okay, like best case scenario, I ask him all of these. Um, and I did, cause I got called on first. And, um, and then when I was done, the media representative goes, okay, Kevin, thank you. I'm like, holy crap. I was the only person who requested him. I could have talked to him for 10 or 15 minutes and I didn't even realize. Um, and so now that that's something I know for the future, like look around, like, make sure you know who else is there and um and then you can sort of decide what to do from there and like which question is your most important if there are a lot of people and if there's no one there just like just keep going you know like make up some stuff um so that was a tough lesson was your was your press conference um via zoom as well Owen? it was really weird so there was um basically like an amphitheater attached to the media room and the player would go up there on stage um and I was in there in like one of the seats. And so I would ask them the questions from like a physical microphone, but it was being recorded over Zoom. Um, yeah. So I would basically ask them in person and then I would get sent the Zoom link later. Oh, um, yeah, Vonch, um, you told me that you had the idea on Zoom to sort of record the questions on your end um, so you could have them sooner, which is brilliant because one of the Zoom press conferences I was on actually didn't record. Um, I asked Harlovich a few questions and I actually don't have the transcript for that because um, it didn't record. So I don't have access to those anymore. And that was also smart because you then didn't have to transcribe them yourself. You could just um, post the clip to Twitter. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was uh, surprising that uh, I, you know, they don't send the zoom links and transcripts right away, but I guess it's understandable if it's the first event and it's logistically it might be difficult to do all of that. Uh, but I thought it was, I thought it would be great if I could just record on my end. And sometimes there were some audio issues um, because obviously I'm trying to speak, but I'm also trying to record it on my phone and I'm trying to get like another copy, but it was, it was, that, uh, that must've been weird because it was for you, uh, Owen, because you were like, it was being recorded on zoom, but you were actually there in person. So that's cool. 
Yeah, it was it was definitely interesting. Um, I remember the most annoying thing for me was when I would get sent the links. It wasn't like, um, like on Twitter, a lot of the time you see um, these transcripts where like um, with like the question and the answer and the person asking it is in bold and the player is in bold. And it's just like this, um, this really neatly typed page. And it was not like that. Like they don't, they didn't send everyone one of those at Newport. I had like an audio file and I would play it and then I would sort of like type it out. And that actually took a really long time. One of the toughest things for me was like, I wanted to go out and watch the tennis, but I also wanted to like get those transcribed as quickly as possible so I could write about them because I wasn't sure I could do it mm. later. Um, and I remember a, call, a couple of them took like half an hour um, to like type out and everything. And I didn't even work them into an article. I just like put the whole thing on my blog because um, I didn't have time or the imagination to like do it the smooth way. Um but yeah, hopefully, and, and I don't think it works that way for all tournaments, um, but that was something I wasn't expecting. Yeah, definitely the smaller tournaments are going to have like less coverage in terms of transcription because it's, as you realize, a tough job to do. <laughs> and yeah. some people require like specialized skills and specialized material that they use for that. You can actually, like there are softwares that you can buy that will actually transcribe it for you but you know it's it's a subscription yeah. they have to pay and things like that and honestly like in how many press conferences do you go to to be fair right so yeah um, I, I started downloading like some third-party apps seeing if i could do that yeah. and it, actually i realized it and so i tried yeah. one it was a free version and uh you know as i as it was transcribing the voice memos audio that i've recorded from my end it completely butchered it so it was not even close to what what he ended up saying and i was just like okay this is this is not gonna work i might as well yeah. just record to them and yeah, I guess it's also yeah. tough, like with the audio from players who have like sometimes a little yeah. bit like more of an accent or speak like not so great English, because honestly, like tennis is people from literally all around the world. So yeah. right. and they're traveling all the time. So it's not like, yeah. 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 Um, Vonj, another thing I was wondering about your experience was um, something I noticed was like, so the night before I did the first day at Newport. I was up kind of late doing like basic research on everyone in the draw. Um, the draw at Newport wasn't nearly as strong as the San Diego draw. And so a lot of the players I didn't know. And I was like, got to know something about everyone because I don't know who I'm going to get to talk to. Um, and a lot of that actually ended up being a waste because um, like you were mentioning, you're in this WhatsApp group chat and you kind of get messages when someone um, is going to a press conference. And from my perspective, it was kind of like, I want to go to as many as I can, but maybe I'm at this other match and someone finishes on another court and they're going to press and I want to talk to them, but I haven't seen any of their match. So then from there, it's kind of like scrambling, uh, trying to figure out what to ask um, and that sort of thing, because you don't want to miss any opportunities. So um, did you have a similar experience? I I had a similar experience with that, actually, because a lot of the times they would be like, oh, you know, you were her catch is coming in the press room at 345. And then, uh, you know, at 325, I'd be like, actually, he's here now. And I'm like, wait, what? Oh, 20 minutes early? Okay, yeah. So then you got to go in because sometimes they, they either show up a little late or they show up a little early and uh, you're just waiting there and, you know, you're waiting for them to get you in the media room. And at that point, you know, another match is going on that's, you know, maybe you want to follow a little bit more closely. That's a little bit more pertinent to who's actually going to win the tournament. And so, yeah, I had to kind of do like multitask both the things or I just at the same time, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity because like, you know, um, you know, you never know if you're going to be in the position again. And so I would just go in there. And even if I didn't have something prepared, I would just kind of, I knew that because I'm not as well known as some of the other journalists in that uh, Zoom room, that I'm probably not going to get called on first. And uh, 
so I, I just had a little bit more time then to kind of come up with a question or just review a little bit of the match through point by point stats or things like that, or just what I, I've always wondered kind of about their game. And then maybe just look up some basic research just so you don't look like, you know, you're, you're totally aloof about what yeah. happened. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, you would definitely have to scramble. Like it's not um, like no, nothing is really like fixed. And so the more well-prepared you go, the better, but it's, it doesn't kind of just yeah. you know, guarantee results right away. I guess you have to really define your scope, right? So like you have, um, at least like in my head, I could come up with like three reasons to why you would pick a player. And one of them would be like, they're, as you said, like a top player that you'd expect to go far into the tournament. Um, the second reason would be like, it's a, a player that you expect to do better in the future. So like a younger player who's like up and coming and you want to talk to them. And the other reason would be like they're from your country and then you just want to cover for them, right? And that's one of the reasons why, for example, I don't think you were able to talk much, I guess, uh, with Chapel because Match Point was there and uh, they needed their content for their media, right? So they're obviously going to like stick with Chapel as much as possible, right? So because that's like that's where they win their content, right? And as you also struggle with Andy Murray, big media have like bigger... Um, slices of the pie when it comes to like big players so yeah yeah and it Andy Murray is a totally different situation nowadays right because like he's a wild card like ranked outside of the top 100 but he's Andy Murray but you got to talk to Casper Root who's actually a top 10 player and won like three titles yeah. back to back this year is what his fifth title this year or fourth yeah fifth, fifth title of the year yeah. first on the hard court you know he's never lost yeah. a final this year he's now probably going to make Turin probably going to qualify for the year in finals and yeah, he's had a he's had a really good year. He was probably the most he was probably the most impressive player for me this this week and such an eye opener to actually how much more there is to his game than I realized. Yeah. Because you know, he is just casually labeled as a clay court specialist, a clay court grinder. And um, you know, I mean, the stats kind of, you know, show that. If we're being honest, like he's just basically swept a lot of clay court 250s and he's, you know, made a couple of Masters 1000s and all of his best results have come on clay, but slowly he's starting to show that he's really becoming more of an all-court player and just kind of rounding into that skill set. It's reminding his trajectory, actually, reminding me a lot of, even though they they're, they have different um, ceilings in terms of their power and explosivity, but a little bit of Dominic team, sort of five, six years ago when he was starting to finally like win smaller tournaments on a hard court and just build year after year after year. And then eventually he won the US Open. So I feel like, you know, rude with his mentality and just the way he, competed this week and he he went through this was by far his most impressive run he made three top 30 players and andy murray to win this title and you know he did it off the back of he played the labor cup with those other five uh, top 10 players so i think that actually gave him some good experiences to practice and hit a lot with those guys and he won a match there at labor cup pretty handily against radio Opelka. and he'd even bageled radio Opelka before the us open started and he's you know he'd, he'd had some good results on hardcore before a couple of masters 1000s and Actually, I, I realized there's a lot more to his game. He can really volley. I didn't know he could volley so well. I mean, I, I knew he had good hands, but just the way he was able to transition and his, uh, his transition game, it was pretty impressive uh, throughout the whole week. And then he could stay. His defense was so great on the slices. Um, he was doing a really good job in, of just um, tactically. He was digging. He's super fast. He covers the court really well. He does the two-shot pass really well, which, you know, as Murray is you know, getting older and he's coming back from these injuries, he's trying to net rush and come to the net a lot more. And so because of that, Casper Ruud was really using his 
um, he was really taking a deep return position, but then he was getting so many balls low um, on passing shots at uh, at Murray's feet and then just getting a second ball to hit after that with the two-shot pass. And he did that so well throughout the whole week, just um, just really just doing such a great job of counterattacking. And he's so quick and he anticipates so well. So I was very impressed by just how much of an all-court player he's really becoming. And then just actually how much more charisma he has than I realized. Because he was quite a bit of a crowd favorite, even against Grigor and even in, definitely in the final. Um, you know, the, he had a lot of Norwegian support and he had a lot of, um, you know, he stayed so long after the matches and, you know, signed a lot of autographs, took a lot of selfies. And I think he's going to be really popular now in San Diego and, and Southern California. It's so great because, uh, you know, I feel like he's really embraced the whole like uh, hardcore thing. And um, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. He's really kind of just taking it in his stride and he's just, he's proving that he can kind of play now on on both surfaces and he's yeah he was a real eye-opener for me this week i must say i was pretty impressed yeah he even did a tweener once mid-rally <laughs> out of nowhere he just went oh, i remember that that was um that was one of the few matches i was able to catch a bit of yeah. and then he also did a saber at one point against oh, the, really the that's hilarious in the quarters and he's just like oh yeah i can do that too huh nick curios look at me so it was it was great it was it was it was awesome yeah it's yeah. funny that's cool that you're now mentioning the tennis now because like if we're moving on to the actual <laughs> tennis of the week, like I guess in a way, like you already said, like Rude impressed you and um, I guess like you, you can maybe chat a bit or if you Owen as well, like if you have any uh, insights now, like ahead of Indian Wells, like not less big tournament of the year, but probably the biggest, well, I guess the ATP finals are still on, but well, I still don't know how seriously to take that tournament. Like <laughs> the ATP yeah, I mean, finals. I'd say, yeah. I mean, it's this is like tennis paradise, Indian Wells, and it's often called yeah. the first major. Well, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a combined event, so I feel like that's probably where, probably the biggest the, Masters one thousand of the year now. Yeah, um, the, coming up at least on hard yeah. and um, two things, I guess. Like one, how did you find that? Um, you obviously have have been to other tennis um, tournaments before, so it's not like your first live t- tennis tournament. Um, both of you but um how do you find that this changes your perspective on like maybe ahead of indian wells like the players that are playing now um and yeah, yeah. how do you see like yeah. how do you see like the players now and especially like maybe andy murray and his chances maybe of like getting more than a couple wins in the same week yeah uh, i'll defer to Vance on this one because newport as fun as it was to watch um the field was not super, super top level, and it was also yeah. on grass. So I think the players who played there are not going to have as much relevance to how Indian Wells goes. True. I'll be interested to see how Brooksby does. He was runner-up in Newport, had a great U.S. Open, a very fun match with Djokovic. So I'll have an eye out for him for sure, but I doubt many other players in the draw are going to make a splash. Yeah, unless yeah. Anderson really comes back from uh, to his, yeah, which I don't think so. But... Yeah, I mean, Indian Wells is going to be very interesting this time of the year. Um, in October definitely the courts are a lot slower and grittier 
but the ball travels pretty fast throughout the air. So it actually can accommodate a lot of different play styles. But um, I find that the best clay court players, they also tend to have a good amount of success. And so do the best servers. And so do the best all-court players. So it's a really good mix. And, um, you know, I mean, without the big three um, playing this time and with Medvedev having just won the U.S. Open, I, I think, frankly, he's going to be pretty motivated to perform well because this is a, a tournament that he actually hasn't done very well in, in the past because he just hasn't had a chance because it was canceled last year and he is the number one seed. This is the first time Indian Wells, I believe, without a big three since 2000. So it's been a really long time. That's so. Yeah, and uh, so Medvedev will be the top seed there. And, you know, I guess you're looking at those top five, six players, but like Miami, we saw without the big three. And, you know, that was pretty interesting. And so you have players like Hercatch and Rude and Berrettini and, you know, um, you know the other usual players in the top 10 that we know. But it's uh, it, it could also lead to some pretty big breakthroughs and some some upsets, I think, mm-hmm. like this time of the year. Um, but I think also San Diego is San Diego is a, a, a decent indicator for like I think Casper Ruud I think he'll really love the conditions there he spoke a lot about it in his press conference actually how much he's looking forward to finishing the year really strong and how how much how um, he isn't feeling super tired yet because he's had a you know he lost relatively early at the US Open so that gave him a lot of time to just kind of build up and get back into shape and he's in really good physical condition right now and obviously he has the confidence from winning San Diego and he will be seated pretty high at Indian Wells, and you know I wouldn't, I would not want to play Casper Ruud um, at Indian Wells in these kind of conditions, um, especially with how confident and how big he's hitting the ball right now. Um, um, so a, a next step play. I would love to see for him is um, now that he's won this tournament, how will he do against sort of the cream of the crop of the field in Indian Wells? Because I think Medvedev is a really big favorite there. Like I don't think yeah. there's anyone who, like I would give a solid, solid chance to beat him. So I want to see Rude play like Medvedev or Tsitsipas and see how he stacks up against those guys because I think that is where you go next. I think he's um, maybe not as far along as Rublev in that, um, on that track, but I think he's on the same track where um, you yeah, know, you're starting to win some smaller things, but the next step is going to be determined by, like, can you beat the guys who are at the very top? Yeah, that's pretty well said. Like, it's kind of like Rublev last year. You know, he won five titles and he, won, he mopped up a lot of 250s and 500s. He kind of beat everybody he should beat, but now it's the real test against the best of the best to sort of in the quarterfinals, semifinal stages of big tournaments. And he's, there's a small sample size. He did play Sitsipas in the quarterfinals uh, of Canada and he played Zverev in Cincinnati and those weren't very competitive. Yeah. So now he's, now with, with this win and every week he's, he seems to be gaining in confidence. So it should be interesting to see what it looks like when he plays some of these guys. And even had he played Rublev in that final, that would have also been interesting. Um, it would have been a good uh, kind of uh, barometer to see where he, where he stacks up against against the best players. But yeah, and, and you know, apart from that, I'm looking forward to that race because there's three guys, four guys actually, with Felix, Rude, Hercatch, and Sinner, and they've all had pretty good seasons, and they're all trying to get those last two spots. So I guess that's a big motivation for all four of them. Yeah. And I guess Shapovalov, but he's pretty far away. He pretty much has to win Indian Wells to have a real shot. So. Yeah. Shapovalov like said in an interview that he doesn't necessarily have Turin as a goal, yeah. but Felix is really set on trying to achieve that. Um, it was really unfortunate. Felix, yeah. Felix, he yeah. was on site and he was uh, he was ready to play, but he just got injured, yeah. you know, the day before, and he he had to pull out. He would have played Grigor Dimitrov. It was nice to see Grigor Dimitrov 
playing really good tennis again. That was yes. another big takeaway for me. I was like, this guy has so many of the best ingredients. He is so good when he's on. It just reminded me of 2017, just watching him. Even though he didn't beat Casper Ruud, he, he did really well to get himself back into that match. And he, he produced some great shots and he sustained it for, for a good period. And he, he got three, three or four really big wins. It's been a rough year for him because I was looking, he was injured in three of the four slams. And, uh, you know, he, he had built up some momentum, like kind of before COVID started, he reached the semifinals of the U.S. Open, semifinals of Paris. He was starting to get his ranking up. Yeah. And then he caught COVID and then it just kind of went downhill from, mm-hmm. from there for parts yeah. of the year. Yeah. So. I, I mean, Australia, it really looks like he was going to make the semifinals. Um, right. I, wasn't he up like 6-1 on Karatsev and then he, got hurt or something? Right. He, was up, he was up 6-2 and he, he was... Uh, he was in a good position, but then he hurt his lower back. So that's, yeah, and he, he yeah, had just yeah. beaten team the round before. And I, I remember that match. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I mean, it, I said on Twitter, it always frustrates me that when Dimitrov plays well, because it's like, this guy is so talented. Like um, when, when he plays well, I mean, obviously there are things you can pick at in his game, but I, like the serve can be good. He's so athletic around the court. He moves well, defends well. The slice is one of the best. He's good hands. I mean, his backhand, it's one-handed. So you're always going to be able to target that side. But I think he hits it down the line almost as well as anyone. He doesn't have the raw he power does. of teams, but he, he hesitates less really to pull good. that trigger um, more than like less than pretty much all the other one-handers. Um, but it just seems like something is always going wrong in his game. Um, someone yeah. said like, yeah. I, I think I tried to make the comparison that like his Achilles heel is that anything can be an Achilles heel. Um, and, but yeah, it's, it's always good to see him playing, playing well because he's one of the most dynamic players to watch. Yeah, for sure. He, he's one of those players that just has so many options in his game because he mixes up spins and heights and he does a really good job. The versatility on the backhand is great, but also he has such a great wrist that he can have folly a lot of shots. Oh yeah. Like passing yeah. shots, right. Just flick it down the line. And it's, strongest wrists on tour, probably those, yeah. Those like stretch one arms passing shots he hits off both wings or the strength yeah. is just ridiculous. Yeah, and some of those shots are just so ridiculous to pull off. And he, he does them he he makes it look easy actually when he does it. And then he's yeah, I mean he lacks a little bit of I would say he lacks a little bit of potency on the forehand, just finishing yeah. just the finishing power is not quite yeah. there. I would imagine that is I would say it's like it's not necessarily he doesn't have it, but he, he doesn't necessarily resort to those shots. Like he um, it was a problem like right on like in the beginning I guess in the of his career like not his career but like when he was starting to come up to the top levels of the game is that he would rally infinitely at times and just rely on this athleticism to win points um, instead of actually sometimes doing what he can actually do and like actually take uh, advantage of his power and dominate points and uh, oftentimes you would see him running around and like winning incredible hot shots but like it you don't want to win an entire match like that, right? You want to. Like... That's that's so right. And um, and exactly, I, I, yeah. I remember watching him play Medvedev. I forgot what tournament. I think it. I think it was Toronto. Or um, mm. and they were playing, and Dimitrov was hitting these forehands that were very good, but they weren't aggressive enough to do anything against an elite defender. So he would hit these shots yeah. that were like kind of close to the line, but not that close. And so they would just come back deep. And I'm like, you can't win a match like this. You need to make that forehand the biggest shot on court. Um, mm-hmm. and he just seems kind of hesitant to do that. Like, again, he'll, he'll hit them sort of close to the corners, but not far enough into the corners to like really boss around, um, the elite players. And so the, the match I'll always point people to was, um, that 2017 Australian open semifinal with Nadal, where he basically played out of his mind the entire time. And unfortunately for him, he's still lost, but that's a good example of what he can do that's, with his forehand. Cause he really yeah. went after it that day. 
that was peak peak Dimitrov. That's the yeah. best match he's ever played in his career. Right yeah, I, I mean everything was loss. firing. Like I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's. I mean, he was close. He was five points away from winning. Uh, two break points yeah. at four three in the fifth. Um, yeah, That's didn't like, he end that year ranked number three, or he, he was did, number he three did. at one point that year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he finished he, the year he won the ATP Finals. He finished yeah, he won yeah. Cincinnati that year. He won two other titles, and he finished the year number three. And yeah, he, he, he's got the game. Sure, I don't yeah, think so. his game has lost that yeah. many layers. Like he can still play very well. Um, yeah. but it just depends on him, and that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. and and you know he is. He has still got a few years. Like it's not like he's super old. He is 30 years old now. But I think with that, he can also just be relaxed because there's not as much spotlight on him now. You know, there's it's more on the younger guys than the next the sort of 20 to 25 year olds. So uh, you know, there's he can definitely get back to the top 20. It just takes a couple of two or three really strong weeks in, in bigger tournaments. Yeah. And he just he, I mean, who knows? He can uh, he can pull off of a rink and like win majors at like over 30 years old like he uh, pulls it off together like i feel like maybe his body isn't as strong as like orinka was because he didn't get as injured like not as much as he did like back in yeah and who knows what covid is gonna hold for him in the future hopefully not not hopefully he's gonna have like no setbacks from from the disease but yeah, yeah sometimes new, I, think don't know. This, I think just because of one-handed backhands just because of how much they're so adored in the tennis universe and just how much people just attach to them and just how evangelical they they can just look and how beautiful they look i think it's just all right let's let's because move of on. That, because of that <laughs> yeah. media narrative i think it just reels us all in i think we're all guilty of it because it's just yeah when it's when it's firing it is just so great to watch but it's also it has its downsides because yeah. shot selection errors and just you know there's just so many things you can do you have to pick the right shot at the right time and that's yeah. where it just it becomes tricky because his game is almost just it has so many ingredients yeah but it's yeah. kind of just missing his he's kind of just missing the meat and potatoes sometimes and that's just it can be it can be frustrating for him. Yeah, like I think um I mean you guys know I hate the elegance narrative, but w- watching him hit a backhand winner down the line is one of one of the prettiest things you'll see on court. Right. Um in my opinion, I will say because it is subjective. Yeah. But yeah, I like you look at his game and a guy like him should have a great serve plus one game, but it's like yeah. the serve is shaky enough that he'll just have horrible days. Um and and right. again, sometimes he's not aggressive enough with the forehand and and if you don't have that, it just puts so much pressure on everything else. And Andre put it so beautifully when he said sometimes he just has to try to win a match with hot shots and you can't do that. It's um, it's almost like a, an Alex Dimonor thing where it's like, you're going to win these ridiculous points. The crowd is going to go crazy. You will be all over YouTube, but like it's one point you cannot rely on stuff like that. Yeah. So. And then there's, he's playing a guy in, you know, across the other side of the net who is so steady and yep. he maintains his level all throughout, you know, exactly what you're going to get from him. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Grigor, it's a lot more of the ups and downs, and he just kind of has to navigate and just find that middle ground. And I think that's the that's the most challenging part. But yeah. regardless of it, he, it was a really great week for him, and so he should yeah, for sure he should build on it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, like Miami and Indian Wells are not we're not back to back this year, but they somehow like suffer from the same big three lessness and yeah. uh you know big names in a way but like obviously medvedev has just won a grand slam so that makes everything a little bit more different yeah. um he's almost challenging for number one he has a chance i believe um yeah. for year end um although djokovic is if, if he plays well and if he decides he's gonna go for for the sev- seventh year end number one he's it's possible that he's gonna he's gonna do it he's very driven so i feel like this is a big a bit of a bigger challenge than than winning the u.s open even though winning the US Open was obviously a massive challenge. But um, how do you guys rate uh, Indian Wells right now as to what Miami was 
because Miami just kind of felt like a free for all, and where we had like Tsitsipas and Rublev and players like this, and you're like, this is your chance to grab your biggest title of your career, and yeah. Hurkacz ended up doing it like and nobody really expected that to happen. Do you guys see that, um, you know, the lack of, uh, you know, anticipation for Indian Wells as much as we did for Miami? Because Miami definitely felt like a glorified 500 this year. I, I think on the ATP side, definitely. WTA totally saved Miami um, because you had Andrescu coming back, um, playing all those marathons. Sparty was playing super well. Uh, that was my introduction to uh, Sarah Cerebest Formo. So I think for me, that tournament was all WTA. I watched mm-hmm. the Hercotch Center final and I thought it was awful. I thought it was one of the worst matches I've seen this year. Yeah. I thought they both played so badly. Um, <laughs> was, and it, so, was it better or worse than the uh, Monte Carlo final? Monte Car- oh man, that's tough. I mean, Monte Carlo, <laughs> I live vlogged and that was a painful experience because Rublev did not have a single break point. Um, so yeah. I, think, I think on the ATP side, I'm more excited for Indian Wells than I am for Miami because I think yeah, Medvedev crashed out of Miami like six four six two to Carreño Busta. I don't think mm-hmm. that's going to happen again. Right. He destroyed yeah, Carreño Busta. Right? Oh, oh, he's wait, was yeah. it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right, Batista. Good. I think, yeah. I think Medvedev. I get them confused all the point. time. So yeah, yeah and I, was, I remember I that because he was he was he was a chance that everybody was thinking like maybe it's Batista Good's chance to win because right. he got. Right. He, he got he got like a roadblock that was Djokovic so many times, right? Yeah, so. who, who did Batista lose to in Miami? I don't even remember. Wasn't it Hukac it was as well? Sinner. 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 Oh, yeah, the, yeah, they played a good match, right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I think now that Medvedev has sort of won his first major, added yet another Masters 1000 um on hard, I think like he feels more of uh even more of a solid favorite now. So I'm excited to see what he'll do. I'm excited yeah. to see how TC Foss is gonna bounce back from the US Open. Um because I really think he, I think he needs to get a good result on a Masters 1000 on hard. He has not done a ton on Masters 1000s on hard court. His his first and only final in that category was in 2018. Um, so I think it is past time for him to make another one of those. Um, but yeah, I think I'm I'm more excited for the WTA because that US Open was incredible. I think now for mm. me, it's all about like, What's Raducanu going to do? Like, yeah. what is Fernandez going to do? Like, can they possibly continue the form they were in? I think other players are going to be mad that they missed out on that chance at the U.S. Open. So I think those who, I think like Sakari and Sabalenka are going to be out for blood. Players like that. Svitolina. Sabalenka is already, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sabalenka is COVID. Because um, yeah. didn't, and she didn't get vaccinated. Anyway, I let's not get started on that. Um, <laughs> no. But yeah, I think um, I think players like that who sort of lost narrowly or um or lost in a late round are really going to be looking to um make a push here. Yeah. And because um like like we were saying, Indian Wells is a huge title. I think I think some would probably rather have Indian Wells than the year round finals, even though it's fewer points. Um so I just can't wait to see like these heavyweight clashes in third, fourth round. Um see like what um what unexpected names make great runs. Um so I think I'm going to be more looking to the WTA side for the great matches. And on the ATP side, I'm more going to be thinking like, what's, what's Medvedev going to do? Is he going to back up what he did at the U S open? Yeah. I think it's a little different now in terms than Miami because Medvedev now has this huge aura on hardcore where he's just won just about every big title, except for Australian open and New Wells in Miami. So I yeah. think, and, and I think he's pretty, he's pretty motivated. He'll be pretty motivated by that year. And number one, and he, I've already seen videos of him training at UCLA, like pretty, intensely and he seems pretty like you know like he really wants Indian Wells and then and then yeah I mean 
it's going to be interesting to see, you know, Sitsipas, what does he do after losing in the third round to Carlos Alcaraz at the U.S. Open? And then Sinner, who just won a title this week. How did those guys sort of, who are just on the edge of qualify on the ATP side, you know, how many points do they pick up and how close are they to actually secure that spot? Because that'll be, that'll be kind of interesting. Her catch won Miami. He likes playing in the States. He's, you know, in pretty decent position to qualify. Same with Felix. Um, yeah. And then Rude, I'm interested to see how he backs up San Diego because I watched him so closely. I'm interested to see if, um, uh, what kind of a draw Andy Murray gets because a lot of his <laughs> results will actually just depend on the draw and just, you know, how, how he can, you know, just bounce back and how many matches he can win. And then I'm just, and then the WTA fascinates me because Fernandez is coming back, Raducanu, and just all the hype around her is still in Great Britain and all around the world. And she's just taking it all in her stride and she's going to play more events after Indian Wells. And, you know, it it's going to be a shock to the system for everybody if she loses first round but it really shouldn't be because that's just yeah. you know what you should expect she has so little experience at this level and she's just sure. catapulted like eight levels to finally win a major and this was her her second main draw of a slam her fourth wta event and you know was the u.s open so it's just it's absolutely crazy and if mm. she starts building momentum she could also realistically qualify for but let's not get too far ahead of yeah. ourselves there she, she's um she's still looking for her first win at a non-major event right exactly yeah yeah which so is non-major WTA event yeah yeah it's, it's absolutely yeah. Crazy. it's a, one and there's I no party no, playing yeah. and there's no arena sabalenka naomi yeah. osaka is still yeah. struggling with her mental health yeah and yeah. and Barty and sabalenka have been two of the biggest names of the year because they had that rivalry yeah i mean on clay a lot of it for that first half of the year um and so now I think, because um, I think if Barty were playing, she might still be the favorite. Um, yeah. I think like, even though between Barty and the fields, like you pick the fields, it's still tough to pick against Barty as that one favorite. Because I think even though Radu Kanu won that US Open in such dominant fashion, it is tough to pick her as the favorite because it's still like, okay, like that just happened and it was absolutely yeah. amazing. But yeah. ma- maintaining yeah. that high of a level I, seems like then, a totally different yeah. task. I, I don't and, have a favorite for the WT. Yeah. And then you have Bolishkova just kind of like poking her nose like in, in like the top player in the elite. Just kind of, she got like two big wins over Sabalenka, got a couple of finals this yeah. year. Yeah, she's um, already so, qualified for Guadalajara, the top four. Yeah, you know, so like this, she decided not to play even Belgian King Cup just because of that. So you see the intent of her, like to actually try and do well, like in those tournaments. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Pliskova mm-hmm. is someone who I have trouble getting a read on right now because her year has been her best one in a while. Like, um, yeah. like Wimbledon, she won that amazing semifinal. And in the final, she wasn't that far away from winning. And I don't even think she used the right game plan. I thought she went way too much to Barty's forehand. Um, so like, I think it wouldn't have been out of the question for her to win that. And then at the U S open, she went deep as well, but then she lost in like this really weird flat way to soccer. Um, and so I'm kind of like, is like, is she back at the top to stay or, or like, like, can we rely on her yet? Um, so I, I'm going to be interested we'll to see. see how she does as well, because we know the peak is still there. Yeah. Um, I think so. we can still safely pick her to, to make a quarter final. Like, yeah. And I think winning the tournament is kind of like a big, big question mark. But like, if you if you were to pick her to like make quarters and semis, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But to be yeah. fair, and 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 the ATP, like the, the the one thing for me is like Andy Andy Murray, like just speaking necessarily, like not necessarily about Indian Wells itself, but like him. I feel mm-hmm. like if he can get two wins in a row and like make beat a seated player and then like follow it up with something or beat somebody and then follow it up with like a seated player win which is probably the most likely outcome that it's gonna face um 
I think he's gonna maybe just say like, "Hey, I can I can do this for more than two matches in a row, right?" So I feel like this is kind of like going to open it up the opportunity for him to like uh, break back into the top 100, maybe the top 50, and like maybe win a couple tournaments out thereafter. Um, not sure if he will ever get to the level of like competing for Masters 1000 again. Grand Slams is definitely something that we don't want to discuss right now because honestly, like, where is Andy Murray right now to win a Grand Slam? I don't think it's something that is that um, valuable to the discussion of Andy Murray. And yeah, in mean, terms of the WTA, like, Raducanu and Fernandez, um, I think they're in different positions right now because Fernandez has been more consistently at the WTA level. She was ranked higher than um, Raducanu in the US Open. She has won her first title this year. Um, so it's not like players don't know her. Like she's been there. She's played a couple of big players before. Um, but Raducanu is still sort of like a question mark. Like we've seen a peak Raducanu like playing incredible tennis, um, which is something that you supposedly shouldn't be able to hold up for too, too long. But like, it's it's like, is she going to keep going? Like, when is she going to lose a set? Like, whereas for Fernandez, like, okay, um, is this a level that is going to be maintained? I am hoping so. And I think she's she's got it. I think she's kind of like unlocked something in her game that like she needed a couple wins in a row that obviously like reaching the final, beating top three um, seeded players, like I think two top 10 players and on the on the way, four. Uh, no, three. It was like three, three top three five top players, players yeah. which three is top five players. absolutely insane. Yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. But like, yeah, it, but... It's it's gonna be so so interesting. And to be fair, like before any before I call any any titleists for Indian Wells in the WTA, I just wanna see who, this first week, like who who does well. Like in the first two rounds, like where are those players that we look look at them and see like, hey, they have big future ahead of them. How are they going to do right now? Yeah. Right. So yeah. I just wanna see that right Couple now. Well, other players that come to my mind for Indian Wells, as we were just talking, I you know, there was also a WTA event going on in Chicago and I didn't get to you know, watch mm. it much because of my um, San Diego experiences, but uh, we had a final with Muguruza and Jabbar, and both those guys were kind of on the edge of qualifying for Guadalajara, and they're kind of been top 10 players this season, but it was nice to see Muguruza pick up a title uh, because she had been playing supremely well in the first three months of the year. She realistically could have won the Australian Open. She had two match points against Osaka in the fourth round, and that didn't go her way, but she then won Dubai. She one, she reached the final of another event, lost to Ash Barty before the Australian Open started. So she's done. She And then she got injured in Charleston, and then her, her results were a little bit affected during that whole summer. But she's really turning it up. I think her consistency has been pretty big this year, season for her. And she she's not really... She's had a, quite an interesting career. Like She's won nine titles. But I think only I think only two of them have been on hard court, which is pretty... I, I'm, I'm, only two of them have been on surfaces other than hard court, which was the French Open in Wimbledon that she won. So that's pretty two best pretty wild to think about, yeah. Because she's she really ever just turns up and wins small titles. All of her titles are like slams or they're one thousands, and she's won nine of them, which isn't you know an insane amount, but it's but now she's starting to win more than one in, in the season. So I'm curious to see how she backs it up at New Wells, and then also same with Jabor because uh, she's she's had an amazing year too. She's won forty four matches this year. She's like eight or nine in the race. And she could actually qualify and she's, you know, super electric and fun to watch. And she's, she was up a set in a break in Chicago on Magruth yeah. and that, that just completely flipped. So yeah, was, th- that was a match I wish I had seen in full. I watched the highlights earlier and from 
I think six, three, three, two and a break. She lost 10 games in a row to lose the match. And the highlights really only showed a few points from that stretch. So we don't really know what happened Mm. if she lost focus and couldn't regain it, or if it was a physical thing, because I think as good as Mugarutha is, I don't think it was as simple as Mugarutha started playing better. And that was enough for like that total dominance. I mean, because Jabour has produced a couple of the best performances of the year, like at Wimbledon, her match against Fiontech, I think she lost the first set seven five, and then after yeah. that she was untouchable. It, it was, was the same thing against Muguruza round before. It was those two matches against Muguruza and Jabor were insane. Like both yeah. times she lost the first set seven five, and then she just she swept the next two sets. Yeah, I, I mean she was hitting these the ridiculous shots from all over the court. Um, I was talking to Vonch before this episode started, and the highlights there were a couple of points from the first set against Muguruza where she was pushing her from corner to corner so effectively that Muguruza was just getting shoved into these crazy positions on the court. And so Jabor could do whatever she wanted. I think she hit like this casual cross-court slice backhand winner because the court was so open. Like it was a slow winner. Um, That was how well she had like opened up space on the court. Um, And like, yeah, her court craft is amazing. She can hit these ridiculous winners from outside um, the doubles alleys. Uh, The drop shots are obviously a huge weapon. Um, A drop shot and set point. Oh my God. Oh yeah. 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 That, I mean, I, I remember... I remember thinking that and I was like, she telegraphed that drop shot. Like it was high. Like you knew it was coming. And yet it had so much backspin that like it was unreachable anyway. It wasn't like one of those Djokovic drop shots that like barely clears the net. It was like like again, she advertised it, but it was so good that like it didn't matter. Yeah. Um it's crazy. She has the talent to pull those shots off. It's just yeah. yeah. You know, if you do it so many times, it becomes predictable and it's just it's tough to win yeah. a whole match with with shots like when you have so many of those in your yeah. bag, it's just yeah. if you I, I guess against a player like Muguruza is because she's so dialed in and locked in from the baseline and she has such good length on her ground strokes. I'd imagine if you, you know, like again, we don't know what caused that big drop off, but my sense is that it wasn't completely all physical. It was a lot of it was mental as well. And she just she had one bad game where she got broken back and she just got a bit discouraged. And that's mm. all it really takes with the tempo that Muguruza brings from the baseline and the relentless firepower off both wings. Yeah. It's just, it can be too much sometimes. And, yeah. you know, it's it's crazy yeah. because Jabor is, Jabor has it. She has all the shots. She has it all, yeah. I think yeah. Jabor can fall victim of her own game in a way. Because, like, if, yeah. if she can produce those shots, yes. But, like, at the moment that she may lose the confidence, as you said, like, you can go like a, a bad stretch of like maybe three to four games where she's playing badly and trying drop shots where just not. It's having... also one of those where it looks yeah. really really good, and then it, when it's when it's on, and then it just it can look terrible when it misses. Yeah, because like the drop shots sometimes they just fall like way too too far far from the net, right? So like they just become like easy put aways, and yeah. she starts getting too down on herself. But like when she's locked, they become in bailout she, shots. Yeah, and that's where it's. Yeah, she's dangerous when she is playing well i mean it sounds dumb to say but like it's there's a lot of players that are playing well that you can still see a way to beat them but like jabbar is a player that like can be if she's confident and she's focused she will play well and she will play her shots well and she has so many shots that she can play that it it will keep the opponent guessing just so too much and yeah she also has a big serve i find like it's something that is not necessarily talked about as much because obviously job shots are far more flashy um but she has a serve that she can she can get to like not necessarily the level of Barty level, but like in a way she can use it similarly, which is not a speedy serve. It's not like 
booming serve that's going like 120 miles per hour but she can place it really well she can disguise it really well and she has a lot of like slice on on that shot too so like yeah yeah, yeah she the, can just she can inject pace out of nowhere true in, that too. in the middle yeah. of a rally she can just go really big down the line on yeah. either mm-hmm. side it's, this might seem like a bit of a weird comparison but i feel like with all her options like sometimes when she's playing well it almost reminds me of federer where it's like when he's mm-hmm. in full flow it's like mm-hmm everything he touches turns to gold it's like right. you think his backhand is a weakness like he's gonna hit winners off of that and like when they're playing well it's like they look unstoppable but then when they're not playing well it's kind of like everything can also go wrong it's like because yeah. sometimes federer will yeah. just like shank a rally forehand which is like his biggest strength um and sometimes with Jibor, her biggest strengths can let her down as well um and so i think like that astonishingly high peak is there um but it's it's the floor that needs to come off yeah Yeah, and then, you know, it was nice to see Sinner not lose a set in Sofia and just win that title. But he did have some ups and downs kind of in between. I still think his serve can improve a little bit and he can, he can, he still has ways to go. But four titles in 11 months, mm-hmm. that's pretty good consistency, I'd say. What is his ranking right now, currently? 12, I believe 13? he's 12 or 13, but in the race, he's 10. And yeah. it's actually nine because Rafa's probably not going to play. So, so, so you're not too far off. Like last year, I think we were talking to Steve Flink. And yeah, and he, he both of you, yeah, yeah. Both of you were saying like he's, he's going to, I think he's going to be number like top 10 by next year, so by yeah. the end of next year, yeah. which will be this year. So not there yet, but still a couple tournaments to go. What strikes me about him is just he's not really so keen on achieving milestones and title. Obviously, he's doing that, but it's it's more about the bigger picture with him. And it's more mm-hmm. like incremental improvements. That's what I've yeah. seen from Sinner. I think that's the encouraging part. His performance against uh, Sasha Zverev was not so great at the U.S. Open. It was yeah. a bit disappointing, but he 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 bounced back well now, and he's won a title. And he he part of the reason was also he was just physically so spent by the time that match came around, so he wasn't able to play his best. But I think this week, you know, he the match against Monfils was very straightforward. He, he it was there were no breakpoints chances that Monfils had, and it was. A clean six three six four. He was just the better player, so mm-hmm. that's pretty encouraging. You want to win matches yeah. like that. It's also nice to see Monfils playing playing some good tennis because he's pretty good for the sport and he's entertaining. And I think I saw a stat from Enrico that he's once he's reached seventeen. This is his seventeenth year that in a row that he's at least made a final. Yeah, I, like he's only behind Rafa, right? Which Rafa is has wild. eighteen, so yeah. that's you know he wouldn't expect him to be on the list like that. But yeah. that's the smaller two fifties in France, and he's always there. For those. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This yeah. um, this crop of players who's sort of just outside that top eight with um, Chapo, Ojeda, Sim, Center, um, and like a bit Hercotch as well. Like they really interest me because ranking wise, they're not yeah. far away from where they need to be. And yet, I think I kind of feel like if you look at their results in the majors, it still feels like they have a yeah. ways to go. Like I think Chapo, out of all those guys, he's the farthest away from making the year on finals, right? Yeah, he is. He's, and, he's yet, even like, behind. Like, uh... He's even behind Cameron Norrie, even though you oh, know, wow. Shapovalov made a semifinal at Wimbledon. Yeah, just, and, and, and that's what I was going to say. I, I think right. that semifinal at Wimbledon is the most impressive thing any of those guys have done all year. Like, right. I think um, like him playing Djokovic that close. Um, but I think at the same time, the thing that tells me that they're still kind of far away is like, it was close, but it was still straight sets. Like, it's yeah. like they're, they're taking their steps, but there are so many yeah, steps to me, go. For me, it's the other results after that, you know, losing seven of the next 10 matches. I think it's yeah. just, it's one of those things that Chapo just has to 
he has to he has to still calibrate that, you know, because week in, week out, it's not surprising for me because I think it's it's just kind of never been Chapo's thing to be so consistent week after week and just, you know, he's never going to be like a Nori, you know, for instance, yeah. and just clock in and get to all those 250 finals and, and do that. But he's going to have weeks where he's going to be absolutely amazing, like Wimbledon. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's also the pain from that loss because what he said after the match, like, that told me, like, he expected to win. Um, and yet, like... And he played better, probably on average. It was just he lost every big point. Um, yeah. And so I think I think that's there's a lot of scar tissue from that. Um, mm. So I, I wonder he, if he's he, still he tried to get him. he tried to get rid of that scar tissue pretty quickly, and he opted to oh. skip the Olympics, and then he just played a clay court event in Stad. And you know, I thought I I felt like that was a questionable decision at the time, yeah. but then he, I, there, there's no big clay tournaments for the rest of the year. Yeah. So I mean. So he, he just has some some figuring out to do, but he's kind of in kind of the same player we've always known. And so that's where I just I'm still waiting to see that little bit little bit extra improvement. But the good news is he's still young and 22 and he already has a major semifinal. Not many players can say that, right? Mm-hmm. And same thing with Felix. Not many players can say they have eight finals and it's just he, yeah. Yeah. crazy with Felix still he's hit his best uh, Grand Slam result oh, yeah. at Wimbledon. And then he reached the semifinal in the the next the very next slam. He got yeah. a little bit of help from Alcaraz, uh, um, probably like too many matches, and like he had to retire due to injury. But like I feel like Felix was really he was also winning. He won the first set. I feel like he, I think he could have won that match probably in four um, if so, um, Alcaraz uh, was to finish it. Um, yeah, like he didn't. He sadly didn't play like his best tennis um, against Medvedev at all times, but he. I feel like he he could have been real danger if he had won that that second set. Honestly, yeah, like he was... he has a ceiling that is very very high, and yeah. I am expecting great things for him in, in the future. We'll see what what happens yeah. in the next the end of this year. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So so pretty exciting, I guess. To... Yeah, Hold yeah. On. I was I wasn't sure how much we were going to have to talk about, but yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm very excited for Indian Wells now. Yeah. It's, it's that's what happens when we bring all of, all the three of us together. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. got to keep to a tighter hours. schedule and do this again next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so much fun. Also, For shout sure. out one last thing. Shout out to Allison Van Whitebank. I think that's how you pronounce True. it. Whitebank. She won her fifth title of the year. She's never lost a final, and she beat. It was in Astana, I think. She beat uh, Yulia Putinseva. So good yeah. result. She yes. lost the first set and came back and won. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's had some big results before. She beat Muguruza, I think, at Wimbledon when Muguruza was the defending champion. Got to about the fourth round. She's made a French Open quarters before. Wow. She's pretty, you know, she's got some nice finesse. Her game really would suit, like, indoor hard courts and grass really well. Hmm. And she really brought it against Putin Seba, who was pretty frustrated afterwards and just kind of, like, threw her racket. She was pretty angry. but Because it was her hometown and she was so close. She was up a break in the third set. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, just wanted to throw that in so congratulations to her yeah so yeah i guess that will, that will cover it for for this episode the first one since i don't even know when like wimbledon <laughs> that we did it an episode together i think so yeah but, we yeah, also made cause, a because we did we also party made party a video then... we made a video for yeah. tiktok tennis right and then that, we did that yeah oh yeah so i think yeah after, um, just before the wimbledon final men's final we did a video together yeah yeah i think so yeah that was it, yeah. Man, i can't believe we didn't do one during the us open yeah it's like everything was just too hectic especially yeah. on my end with the canadian doing well the canadians doing well we actually 
let's not forget Dabrowski. She we had three Canadians in the semifinals. Oh, with, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and a very very sad injury from uh, Stefani in in the, the semifinal in the tiebreaker. She tore her knee ligament, so that was Ouch. pretty yeah. sad. And um, so hopefully she's going to be back. And I don't know if many people that are listening to this podcast know I'm also Brazilian, so I was double frustrated with that <laughs> with that loss. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, um, hoping Indian was going to be great. Uh, it was amazing to talk to you guys. Let's. Yeah. Definitely do this more often yes. now that we, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, looking forward to many more of these chats, yeah. honestly, with the three yeah. of us. Uh, yeah, and, and thanks for sharing so many stories from San Diego. Um, yeah. That's really fascinating, like, first half of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah my cool. pleasure. It was great to represent Tennis and Bagels and get that credential and also compare it with your experiences from Newport. So that was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, hopefully okay. one of us will be on site for another tournament soon. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Ex ex expecting that uh, the blog article soon, Vunch, from San Diego. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I'll try my best to put all of that together. Yeah. We all have stuff to do in our lives. So, but uh, yeah. yeah. Time to start emailing uh, the credential people in Melbourne to get to one of those. Yeah. Let's get the, the Australian <laughs> open. <laughs> and we forgot to end the episode. But with the magic of editing, you can still follow us at Tennis and Bigos Podcast. And Vunch is Advent Vunch V2K. Owen is at Tennis Nation, and I am at Rollenberg Andre. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com